those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to The Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi. And today we have a very special guest. I met them in Toronto uh, last year now, and they came to my birthday, actually. <laughs> so I guess I haven't introduced who the guest is. So it's Pierce Delahunt, who is an expert in social emotional learning. And uh, yeah, we met up in Toronto. It was the morning of my birthday party, and I was thinking of inviting them to the birthday party, but I just wanted to to meet them first to to make sure that everything was was all good. And uh, we had a really great time, and so yeah, made it to my birthday party. So welcome, Pierce, to the show. I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. And a shout out to Pizzo, my road trip buddy, who was also there with us. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Shout out to Pizzo. All right. So today we're going to talk about social emotional learning and what that can offer leftism as a movement. We're going to just start quickly by shouting out the patrons. And then Pierce has come up with some very wonderful, hopeful headlines for the future that we're also going to share on the show. And then we'll, we'll get into it. So uh, first, I'd like to thank the new patrons for this month. Thank you so much to Kim Graves, Jasmine Wikes, Frankie Jester, Rolandis Dove, Tegan Bollinger, Valerie True, and Anthony Pizzo. Shout out. So our content is always free for everyone, so we rely on the, the generous donations of our supporters. So if you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash veganvanguard. Or make a one-time donation uh, via PayPal on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com. Or just share the podcast with friends and family. Or give us a review and ratings on iTunes, which also helps to increase our reach. So, Pierce has very graciously agreed to partake in our hopeful headline for the future, I guess, segment that we do at the start of every episode. So Pierce has come up with a bunch of headlines for the future. If the transformed, beautiful socialist utopia that we want to see has come to be, I've crossed these out <laughs> so that I, I can uh, react to them. So I haven't heard them yet. So Pierce is going to lay it on me and uh, yeah, take it away, Pierce. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. I'll say this is very fun to do as well. I enjoyed this a lot. So uh, uh, these are some of the headlines I got here. Um, Department of Education more funded than the military. <laughs> wow. Well, what would that what would that have to make it like a trillion dollars? Uh, how, how much is the military funded right now? Uh, yeah, in the US, uh, roughly that per year. Although uh, we could also do that by uh, defunding the military, and that would also accomplish the same goal. True, true, true. Can you imagine if education was funded to like whatever seven seven hundred and fifty trillion or whatever it is that you you fund the military with? Yeah, that'd be a total transformation of of uh, you know. Obviously, you know you can use education it can be weaponized too. But wow, I love it. Great headline. Um, next, uh, next one. I don't know if you know this person or not, but, uh, President Collins abolishes CIA prosecution in the works. <laughs> uh, so I don't know Collins, I don't think, but I'm very much down for abolishing the CIA. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Josh Collins is a, uh, 26 year old socialist truck driver, uh, running for 
a seat in Congress in Washington state. But his number one policy platform is abolish the CIA. And when he and his entire campaign team put that out, they had to uh, reassure everyone with constant messaging like, no, we are not depressed. No, we are not suicidal. If anything happens <laughs> to us, like, please understand that it was not an accident. It was not our doing. It was someone else. Honest to God, we're up against the billionaires. We're up against capitalism as a system. But I think the CIA is something that leftists don't talk about that much. But I think that that's one of the biggest things that we're up against, right? Like the CIA is, is really the this cabal of people who have absolutely no accountability. We don't know what they're doing and we never will, but they're driving, you know, imperialism, they're supporting capital there. They could be like the number one threat to, to Bernie Sanders even, right. You know, as a president. So uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. I was on a panel about economic security. And when we talked about what can we do to achieve economic security, my, my first thing that I proposed was not destabilizing foreign countries is of that uh -huh. by stopping that that's a way to promote more security globally and they, like that's why one of the reasons why we need international solidarity for that is to uh to support ourselves and each other absolutely I mean that's what, one of the major reasons why I think it's actually important to partake I suppose in electoralism this time around in America because it's of utmost importance that we have someone in the quote-unquote seat of empire who can at least be pushed to try to minimize imperialism and intervention as much as possible so yeah really great headline thank you yeah that was fun to communes on the rise facilitators see spike in need Ooh, I like that so facilitators who are setting up communes or? Facilitators, in my mind, especially for conflict and uh, people who practice conflict resolution. So for like, you know, coming from a social emotional learning background, that's something I want to see is more appreciation of facilitators. I was on a commune once that like we put a lot of emphasis on building structures and, and tangible things, but there was way less emphasis on the soft skills, quote unquote. Oh, I get you. I get you. So communes are on the rise and therefore we need more facilitators. Yeah, I'm very into that. Uh, and then we'll do one more here. Reparations Committee working with Black, Native and colonized peoples introduces plan expected to pass. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I very much stand all of these. <laughs> so thank you for, thank you for coming up with them. I really love this exercise. If, if anyone again in the audience is interested and wants to come up with some headlines of your own, then we always love reading them. So please send those into us. Moving into the, I guess, core subject here, I guess first, could you just maybe tell, tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your background and the work that you're doing now? Totally, yeah. So, um, my a little bit about my background is that I have a Master of Education from the Institute for Humane Education. They're based out of Maine. The way I describe them is um, that they teach about the world's issues, and then they teach about how to teach about the world's issues, and always with a we call it a solutionary focus. So uh, we don't we don't want to just talk about how bad things are. We want to talk about empowering ourselves to what we can do about it. My research in, in that program was a study of activist education programs throughout the United States. Uh, I learned a lot from doing that research, and that was uh, very awesome. 
I myself, I grew up in Lenape territories of New York and New Jersey, currently live in a van traveling the country. I call myself a social emotional leftist, uh, which I think we're going to get into a little more about what that means. But it's to say that I'm socialist with strong emphasis on the social emotional learning and what it can offer the movement. Especially as a facilitator educator, uh, I like to bring that into education communities. And I give the line that if our peace, love, light, and whole child education movements do not address systemic injustice, then they are none of those things. Personal, political, or the interpersonal and the institutional together, they must be uh, joined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super important. Do you want to speak a bit about a bit about your experience traveling in your van and kind of what you're doing there? I this was like one of the, when we first met, I, you were explaining what you're doing. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is amazing. It's, it's really wonderful when everything is working. Um, a lot of the, the van life YouTube videos, they don't show you the day to day of like driving across the country and then like something breaks and you don't know mm. what, and you just have to figure. And it's, it's, uh, it's maddening. But that aside, yeah, it's been really great. I started out traveling across the country uh, in a pickup truck, did that for a little while and, you know, thought it would be much shorter lived. I thought a pickup truck would be a good option to have once I got to California, which is where I was heading at the time. And then I realized how much I just loved traveling and living that way. And so then I upgraded to a van so that I could, you know, have a more of a home and stand up inside it. And then that's been great. Um, I visited you out in Toronto. Uh, my buddy Pizzo, we traveled together for two months. Uh, yeah, we make really good travel buddies. You can imagine that that's important when, when you live with someone in a van for two months. And along the way, you've been doing kind of facilitation and, and things around social emotional learning as well, right? That's right. Yeah. So I've been speaking at schools or other venues about social emotional learning with a power analysis. I talk anywhere from nonviolent communication proper, but with an incorporated power analysis to uh, U.S. imperialism, but in a social emotional learning lens and language. Oh, I would be very interested to hear about imperialism through social emotional learning. But for the listeners who, who don't know what social, social emotional learning is, you call yourself a social emotional leftist. What does this mean exactly? And what does it mean to say that social emotional learning is the interpersonal praxis and socialism is the institutional praxis? Totally, yeah. So social emotional learning is a broad term, just like science or math. It's just anything... Uh, of educational content that relates to feelings or relationships, including our own feelings, self-awareness and, and self-management and, and relationships to ourselves. My foundational uh, practice in social emotional learning for myself is something called nonviolent communication as developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And that has a a particular analysis and practice to it. A lot of people, there's a lot of misconceptions that we can uh, get into with that. But the basic idea is connecting to the feelings and needs of our own, as well as the feelings and needs of others, and then trying to create the quality. This is the purpose of nonviolent communication as per Marshall Rosenberg is to create the quality of connection such that everyone's needs get met. So the the basic idea of nonviolent communication, with a, a couple caveats, I'll say that a lot of people get hung up on the words it's seen by some, and there are some like good faith leftist critiques, and there's some right wing critiques I don't particularly care for. It's seen by some as very like word or tone policing, and 
any of the leftist good faith critiques, um, or even, you know, any of the bad ones too, I would give the short answer that uh, what they are speaking to is ineffective nonviolent communication and, and possibly ineffective trainers, just as, you know, everything is uh, co-opted by white supremacy and white supremacist anti-socialism, uh, which mm-hmm. is the word for capitalism. The same way every that that co-ops and capitalizes on everything, um, there are also people with you know internalized racism, sexism, capitalism who are teaching NVC and that shows up in not great ways and then gives people a bad impression of the actual practice. I'll say Marshall Rosenberg himself, a lot of people don't realize this, but he was absolutely an, an anti-capitalist. I suspect that he's an uh, anarchist, but um, he's got some lesser known uh, interviews and workshops and talks where he, he goes into some of those. The basic idea then of nonviolent communication is that it's not about the words because we can say, I love you in a way that what is it doing? It's telling the other person to shut up. It's telling the other person that their needs don't matter. And it's dismissing them and manipulating them or gaslighting. And we can tell another person, hey, douchebag, in a way that engenders intimacy and connection and says, I care about you and your feelings. It's not about the words, but because it's harder to talk about connection and consciousness and the ways that we navigate and see the world and what these things mean to us. We use the words as a proxy to talk about those things. I I just think that understanding that makes the rest of it that much easier to get because so many people put such importance on the words that they they think if they're not saying the words right, then they're doing it wrong and then that there's something wrong with them kind of thing. Would you be able to maybe give an example of what you would see as effective nonviolent communication versus a similar statement that would be ineffective. So the the actual like formula for NVC, which you don't you know you don't have to speak in this formula every time you ever talk, but the formula is meant to be a guideline, especially when you're stuck. Is when I see or hear this, I feel when I see or hear then an observation, I feel this feeling because mm-hmm. I'm needing more of this need. Would you be willing to, and then a request? So, you know, I can say, hey, when I'm seeing or hearing this, I'm feeling this way, uh, I'm needing a little more of this, would you be willing to do that? And, you know, presumably that has an okay tone to it. But if I can use the same language, especially from a position of power, if I'm white male boss talking to a black female employee, and, and I can I can use it in a way that I'm not actually trying to connect to the other person's needs. I'm just using the language. And especially from a position of power, which, you know, most of the NVC education that I have myself gotten doesn't include a power analysis. Um, but especially from a position of power, if I'm if I'm asking you what your feelings are and trying to connect with you, that can actually be extremely coercive and, and manipulative, where like, you know, the other person doesn't think that they're free to say no. And they may or may not be, even even if I think I'm doing it right, even if I think I'm saying everything really, really tonally well, then just the fact that that power dynamic exists puts the other person in a bind that I need to make sure I'm aware of and, and addressing if I'm actually invested in the other person's feelings and needs or if I'm just weaponizing it. And that's a whole other conversation. So it sounds like that takes a lot of practice kind of within ourselves as well to be able to be, you know, uh, I guess, present and cognizant of what our, I guess, the power differentials are in any conversation that we're having and what our real motivations are in 
kind of addressing people in a certain way. And that's so important in all social emotional learning is being aware of, of power differentials. And it gets it gets so underplayed in, in most social emotional learning circles. What I particularly like about the nonviolent communication piece is that it's in terms of being honest with ourselves about what our motivations are, the that that always goes to the need. The belief is that everything we say and do is for is to meet a need. Needs being different from strategies, which we can get into. Needs being universal uh, and never conflicting. So like every single person has a need for independence and every single person has a need for connection and community. But what that looks like for each person, for each day, for each moment differs. And so that's where we get into strategies. But so in order to be honest with myself about my motivating factor, I need to be in touch with that need. And then the idea there is that once I understand the need, now all of a sudden I'm no longer attached to any particular strategy. I'm just trying to meet that need. And now that opens uh, possibilities to meeting my need in a way that still honors yours and doesn't violate any of your needs and hopefully even meets them. Could you explain a bit more about what strategies would be versus needs? So the the big uh, differentiation between the two is that a need is universal. So every single person having that need for uh, independence or connection. There's also, you know, the the physical needs like water and food and shelter, as well as existential needs like space or um, joy is also is both a feeling and a need and all kinds of things. Where strategy is, how do I meet that need? Well, maybe I play guitar in a band is the way that I meet both joy and creativity and connection and community. Um, whereas, and and if uh, and a, anything that is attached to a person, that's also going to be a strategy. So if if I want you, Mexi, to do a specific thing, that's a strategy. Uh, oh. So a need is never, I need this person to shut up and leave me alone. That would be a strategy to meet a need. Some It might be a very effective strategy, but it's a strategy. Okay, so that makes sense. So yeah, people don't need the guitar. They need the the joy or the connection or the whatever. People don't need wealth or something, for example. That's just a strategy to meet actual needs. Exactly. Yeah. Money is not a need. Money is a strategy. Also add the caveat under the power analysis that like, you know, capitalism is extreme or sorry, anti-socialism is extremely good <laughs> and effective at uh, rendering people dependent on strategies that profit itself and, and taking away any strategies that do not. So, you know, a car is a popular vehicle, ha. Uh, to meet the need for independence and the need and or the need for a connection, uh, sometimes both. But not every single person on the planet needs a car, but white supremacist anti-socialism really wants that to be the case. It's not necessarily a hard line uh, in terms of putting it in the context of lived reality of, of white supremacist anti-socialism. And I feel like Oh, maybe you can also explain why you call it um, white supremacist anti-socialism instead of capitalism. But I also feel like the system makes it more difficult for people to distinguish, to really determine whether something is a need or, or a strategy, right? I feel like there are so many things that people probably muddle up and think that this is a real need when it's actually a strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. So that I think is actually one of uh, Marshall Rosenberg's big insights is that the whole concept of nonviolent communication is that a lot of people in social emotional learning in general or NVC 
in specific will get stuck on the feelings. But with NBC, feelings matter, but they primarily matter as clues to whether we are getting our needs met and, and what needs are being met. So that everything points to the needs then. So needs get prioritized. And then the if you're looking at a target, which we use in the graphics and the workshops, uh, the needs are centered where the feelings is the middle ring and then the outer ring is the observations. And then off of the target board is the judgments and evaluations. Marshall Rosenberg's big insight around that, I think, is that it is like focusing on evaluations or judgments uh, the big four, I think, and there are plenty of others, but the big four primary ones in our society being good or bad, good or evil, right or wrong, and should or shouldn't. Like, mm-hmm. The fact that we are guided so much, like when we think about what to do, we often don't ask ourselves, we re- really rarely ever ask ourselves, what, how can I meet this need I have? What even are my needs right now? What needs are alive in this moment? Or mm-hmm. what needs are alive in the other pre- people that I care about? We almost never ask those questions. The questions we ask are, what do you think? Is this good? Should I do this? Would mm-hmm. it be wrong of me or bad to do this? The, mm-hmm. the fact that they're doing that, I think, is evil, isn't it? Um, those kinds of questions mm-hmm. where that is a language of domination because it removes us from accessing the our own self-awareness of what our needs are and what the needs of others are. We mm-hmm. all, if we had a needs-based economy, right, then we wouldn't be trying to extract wealth from from each other if we had a need-based economy it would be what are your needs let's see if we can meet them right i think this relates a lot to actually i had kind of an uncomfortable conversation this morning with um someone who anyway i won't go into it but it was basically about like animal oppression and i was upset about it but i guess like within this framework kind of like i'm judging that as that is wrong but you know i could look at it in terms of like what need is this meeting for them but would you say that like my need because i was very hurt um like reading the things that were said and like is it fair to say that like i have a need for justice for all (laughs) or is that just me playing into me me disconnecting from their need um i mean it, it can be both you can you can be aware of your need and disconnecting from their need too, but absolutely justice is definitely a need. One that I think is very much alive in in the left. Uh, that that's you know one of the primary things that we're fighting for. But it's not to say that you that we can't judge, right? Like the to the extent that we can reach that, like that sounds nice and very uh, you know a pleasant place to live. But we're always going to be judging. The idea is not to never judge. The idea is that uh, we act on the needs rather than acting on the judgments. So, um, you know, I have in my family, I have people who whose politics uh, violate a lot of my needs and and disgust me. And mm-hmm. but I have close relationships with them. Because when I'm in connection with them, I am focusing on my needs and their needs rather than my judgments of them, which is to say I have judgments of them, but I don't let those judgments get in the way of the relationship. And in that way, you know, uh, you know, when one of my family members whose politics absolutely disgust me, I'll, 
you know, he would disagree with this assessment, but I would, if you're familiar with the language around motorcycle clubs, he's in a white nationalist motorcycle club. It's a little tamer than how I would normally put it. But, but when he was going through a possibility of, of his, uh, relationship, uh, not working out, you know, I called him to check on him. He did the same for me and the same thing happened for me. And so in that way, I can have that relationship. But of course, like, I understand that, you know, that is an interpersonal thing. That's not an institutional thing. And there are only so many people who can, who can work with that. Um, but that's one of the things that I find very valuable in nonviolent communication is that for the people whose relationships I do want to keep, which, for instance, my family being among them. Um, then it provides a, a navigable way for me to do that. I guess it's just difficult for me when um, you're like, okay, but I I want to, I guess, how do you make someone aware of the fact that they're using strategies to meet their needs that are infringing on, on the needs of other sentient beings or like anyone, you know? Totally. So a couple response to that one is that's the trillion dollar question two is that and to do that first you want to connect with your own needs because if you try to approach that without having fully connected to and owning your own feelings and needs um there's a word for that in nonviolent communication and it's empathy from hell and uh you can try to do that but uh it's it's hard whereas once you're connected to your feelings and needs and and you can speak to that and own that um, then when you talk to them, then, uh, getting them connected to their feelings and needs. So in the context of, you know, I was actually, I just did a, a nonviolent communication workshop for an animal sanctuary and, and kind of basically this question came up where, uh, it was, uh, with someone says that, uh, that they don't, that they don't really buy into the vegan thing, but they're here on a tour because, you know, someone brought them in. Like, how do we, how do we tell them about the needs involved? And first, you want to connect, you want them to connect to their needs and demonstrate a connection of yourself to their needs. So, you know, depending on what it is, you, you, you could say like, oh, so like, what is that about for you? And they might say something like, well, you know, my uh, grandma made this dish that I really like. And, and you know, it's one of the pieces uh, of connection I have to her. And then, then mm-hmm. it becomes a conversation around, oh, I see, like, uh, you have this connection to ancestry and heritage that means a lot to you, especially on like a, a deep personal level with your grandma. And like, especially in the context of people of color, like what, mm-hmm. what weight that that can have for them when like everything is telling them that their heritage doesn't matter on an institutional mm-hmm. level. And now like some, uh, you know, potentially white vegan is going to tell them that, that they, they can't honor their, their grandmother in that way. So if like whatever the situation is with your person, like, you know, there, once we connect to those needs, then we can speak to maybe the other needs being infringed upon or maybe better strategies to meet those needs. Like, you know, I, I can have a conversation that I wouldn't, you know, the, I wouldn't want to be the person having this conversation, but someone could have a conversation around like maybe, uh, you know, your grandmother, if she were aware of like the, the environmental racism of the animal agriculture industry, she would actually like want to change up her recipe somehow. And maybe like this is actually a good way to honor her is by putting your own creativity into your uh, heritage for the sake of justice for all or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But in that way, I think, you know, it's not foolproof by any means and, and it can still be a hard conversation and, and, you know, people can still fuck up, but, um, right. But I think that that is a much more 
promising conversation on a variety of levels. And, and that's the other thing is that nonviolent communication is not a tactic to get what we want. So, and people will sometimes use it that way. That's a big way that it can be used by people in power manipulative, manipulatively. We have that connection. Then even if they're, even if the things don't happen that we wanted to happen, there's generally more resolution from that place of, uh, of conflict. I think this person was kind of being a little, just a little bit disingenuous because like their reason was that, oh, it's not relevant to workers. So like, I don't care or something like that, where it was kind of hard to, to work with. But yeah, this has given me a lot to think about. I think that uh, obviously there's a lot that I need to practice with how to communicate in this way and how to maybe connect with my own needs and, and realize or learn how to connect to the needs of others. So on that point, I guess, how do we tend to disconnect from our own needs or the needs of others in our everyday lives? Totally. Yeah. Um, in, in NVC, uh, this is actually lesser uh, brought up um, and might not even be in the book, but in nonviolent communication, there are the four D's of, di of disconnection. There is denial, deny, diagnose, demand, and deserve. Um, those are the ways that we disconnect from our needs and the needs of others. Um, you know, denial being just saying flat out that they don't exist, uh, or that the strategies don't actually violate those needs or a denial of responsibility, right? Which like the thing I did, like I'm not responsible for your needs. Like I can't, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Which, you know, like as just given that statement, I am not responsible for the needs of others. That is true. Um, but I can still, I'm still responsible for my actions and those actions have consequences. And then diagnose, uh, that's a way to disconnect from, from our own needs and the needs of others. That being like, oh, well, you're feeling that way because of this. Or yeah, like I'm just no good at this because of this. Or even, you know, we can use it in the way like a, a wealthy person with internalized capitalism might think like, yeah, I have this money because like I worked hard for it. Like that, mm -hmm. and so that being a diagnosis that just disconnects themselves, them from other people's needs as well as their own needs. If they were, if we're more in touch with our needs, then we can better see when our strategies are not helpful. So yeah. like if I, if, if I'm amassing great amounts of wealth because I have a need for security and safety, if I'm in touch with that need in an honest way, like, I can understand that extracting uh, billions of dollars from people isn't actually going to meet that need. So that's one of the reasons that the language of domination uses that that white supremacist anti-socialism uses a language of domination of evaluations rather than a needs based language. Um, but then the other two D's of disconnection are demand and deserve demand being a request with conditional threat or punishment so that would be like, you know, if you don't do this, I will use militarized police force against you, right? Or if you do this, I will use militarized police force against you, or or I will send in the military or use the CIA to assassinate your, your leader or, or a contributor to your movement. Um, and then deserve being, you know, like this, this is an expression of entitlement. This is just mine. Um, it doesn't matter whose needs are being violated by it because you like this land that you call yours is some land that I'm claiming for myself now. Um, and or you deserve this horrible thing to happen to you because you, you know, made me angry or whatever, or, or the, the people with the trillions of dollars, they deserve that money because, uh, like they have it now. So that's an expression of how the like efficient allocation of resources under white supremacist anti-socialism, because that it would never give resources to people who don't deserve it.
Right. Yeah. And then, you know, that I'm amassing wealth for because I have a need for security while like, which actively denies security to other people. Right. Um, yeah. Rendering other people materially insecure is a great way to not uh, ensure my own safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which billionaires are starting to realize now. <laughs> they, they're starting to realize. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's clear that uh, can you just explain why you, you call it uh, white supremacist anti socialism instead of capitalism? Yeah, so um, I, I like the reframing. It's not my my own reframing. Um, I got it from the Laura Flanders show who she did an episode about uh like how bad capitalism was and then at the end she says so let's call it what it is it's anti-socialism and uh and i love that so much especially because you know it speaks to my language as a a practitioner of social emotional learning um but um and and given that anti-socialism on an institutional level it it forces us to be anti-social with each other because the more that we internalize the system, the more we ask the question of what can I extract from someone else, which is like the basis of capitalism is how, what can I get out of this? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then every gift that I give to someone becomes a liability or a loss that I have to account for in my social portfolio. Right. Um, and that's where we get like right wing incels talking about sexual market value and that, that kind of stuff. Whereas like an, an institutionalized socialism would mean, you know, if, if implemented well, and there's all this, those internal conversations about what counts as socialism or not, but it, it would mean connection with others and giving to others and with everyone's needs met, then there's no fretting over every last bit and trying to accumulate more to ensure that we never suffer the loss that we don't have enough ever again. And so uh, white supremacist anti-socialism then renders us as all these little uh, companies, individual people, but companies who are trying to uh, compete in the in the social marketplace, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Which, like, I hate even using those metaphors, but speaking about yeah. uh, internalized capitalism, that's what it does. But I find that when I talk about you know anti-socialism in that way, uh, it doesn't make clear what I'm talking about. So I call it white supremacist mm-hmm. socialism so people understand. And I think the reframe is helpful too, because we always talk about capitalism and anti-capitalism, but if we can reframe that into socialism and anti-socialism, then I think it's clear, it, it, it puts uh, white supremacist anti-socialism on the defensive, which is where it needs to be, or just not even on the defense, it needs to be in the garbage bin, but... <laughs> Yeah, I I really like that reframing. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but you're right. Yeah, this this is just a system that just goes against all of our, I mean, all of our needs, but also all of our kind of uh, you know inner human compassion that would seek to bond with others and help others and you know support others and see others be happy. It just kind of pushes us so far away from that. It makes that impossible, or, or makes it so that we have to go against all of those you know, I mean, I don't want to call them natural urges, I guess, but I think it is quite natural for people to be, to have empathy and compassion for, for other beings. So yeah, I really do like that reframing. So speaking, I guess, of language and kind of semantic nuance, there's quite a lot of that, I assume, in nonviolent communication. Um, and, and so what do those kind of semantic nuances do you think offer to leftist movements? Totally, yeah. Um, that's that is one of the the places where I've seen more leftist critique of NVC is around the this word policing idea. Um, yeah. 
and uh and again like i feel for that because like i've seen nbc used in ways that uh actually shut down conversation and and i i you know you can you can use nonviolent communication to uh, hurt people. That's something you can do. You're not like following the purpose of it. So like whether you're like practicing true NBC, you know, we can have that argument. But um, uh, but especially around the language thing, that's uh, that that is a, a concern that I share. Um, but I I tend to appreciate the uh, particular language or the particular semantics that NBC uses. Because I think it offers more clarity. So, like uh, one of my favorite examples for this, uh, as far as uh, uh, socialist organizing goes, is you know there's so much argument uh, in, within the left, or maybe more from from liberals and left, but around self-defense versus violence and and what crosses the line and and those kinds of things. Um, and I'm confident that like you know anything. Any example that a uh, hardcore leftist gives to me that they think is violent, like I'm confident that if I approve of it, it would be something that I would call self-defense. But um, I think that the NVC language makes that clearer what the distinction, for, at least for me, is, which we call it um, the protective versus the punitive uses of force, um, which is to say, like, yeah, are you using the force to stop a harm uh, or are you using the force? Uh, to as a as a strategy for revenge to meet a need for uh for like agency or power or like what would meet your need for justice is to to uh hurt others even when they pose no threat to anyone else anymore um something along those lines and then I think that gets clearer at what those disagreements are which like that's a big thing in in conflict is you know if I go to you and I say I bring to you uh like if, if I'm my the example I like to use is around uh, a more language semantic stuff also is like uh, uh, honesty. So if I go to you and I say, you know, Mexa, you're a liar. Yeah. Um, you can tell me, no, I'm not, because when the thing that you're talking about is like, and, but then we're not we're having a conversation around like what you meant, not the fact that your behavior didn't meet my needs. Um, mm. And so like the whole conflict gets thrown to the side to have a, di a totally different new conflict. Whereas if I say to you, uh, Mexi, when you said the words you said uh, and then did the thing you did, it didn't meet my need for transparency or honesty. Like that, that's not something you can argue with, which I think is also really valuable uh, in, in terms of what nonviolent communication offers is that uh in my mind, if if something is going to be helpful, then or and it's it needs to be true and both and something that is uh, that cannot be argued with, I think is much more, like you can tell me that no, I've totally met your needs or whatever, but then then in my mind that's like an easier line for me to draw that like oh okay I know that like Mexi is not actually listening to me right now. Um, right. not invested in me. And so knowing that, then I can set the boundaries I need to set. Whereas, you know, one of the ways that we, um, that we avoid responsibility for our requests and our actions is by covering it with vague language. So I can mm -hmm. go to you and I can say like, no, Mexi, that's not very cool of you. Um, but if you ask me for like, a specific thing that I would need that I would want you to do in order to meet my needs. And then 
like it turns out oh well it, yeah no wonder i think it's not really cool of you it's because i have really high standards and like for you to meet my needs would like mean you like bending over backwards then i need to confront that in myself and then you're more aware of that and like oh if i ever want to interact with pierce again it means that i need to like do all this work so it's also a sense of radical responsibility which um to me is twofold in that i inherent in part and parcel with taking responsibility for the things I'm responsible for inherently means letting go of the things I'm not responsible for. You can't do one without the other. So mm -hmm. then, uh, to understand the extent of my requests is to then uh, be in touch with my needs and, and have that honest conversation with myself. And then to, un to understand the full extent of your requests, then I can take appropriate actions to protect myself or joyfully meet that request. Yeah. Whew, yeah. I, I feel like the radical honesty part is really important. And I think for a lot of people, myself included, like, uh, you know, we would have to do a lot of work, I guess, getting into right relationship with ourselves, which is like, uh, you know, easier said than done, because I feel like there are so many needs that we have that are kind of internal. Like I have a lot of needs that I know stem from like internalized misogyny, right? Or like internalized patriarchy, which are like, I need to feel like loved or like have attention or like I need to feel, you know what I mean? Like there, there are ways that like I am needy with the way that I present in the world due to that kind of like internalized patriarchy. And so like being radically honest about that, <laughs> I think is uh is something i mean i think it's so important that we actually all do do that work and so yeah i think this is actually really exciting in that like i think that in order for us to build this better world we do have to really connect with that and be able to connect with others from a place of being in right relationship with ourselves. um i actually just want to shout out Catherine, who made like a really awesome video about uh do we need a spiritual revolution and we were talking a bit about how you know, I think as leftists, we do really need to to get better at reaching people on an emotional level and not just, you know, we think that if we just give people enough information that like if they're just educated enough on the facts, then they'll just make a, a proper and right decision that's based in injustice and, and whatever. But, you know, if you think about the right wing, like the right wing doesn't do that. They don't try and present like these academic or, you know, here's all the information. They really just try to like hit you in the gut and kind of get at your kind of base level emotions. Um, and I think that we need to be better for sure at tapping into that. And like to do that, I think we need a lot of work on ourselves. But yeah, I guess thank you for... Absolutely. Yeah. I think for me, uh, the thing that that I, I also really appreciate NBC because uh, I need a kind of left brain logic uh, framework to better access my right brain emotional side. And NVC really offers that to, to me in a way that, that really resonates with me. So, but from that outreach perspective, I think it's, it's so powerful to like, if, if I come out and I say, you know, kidnapping children and putting them in concentration camps is wrong, then what the argument then with a, a person who disagrees with me is, is around like, uh, what what counts as right and, and what is wrong and what counts as kidnapping and, and concentration camps. Whereas if I say the actions in question, kidnapping children, putting them in concentration camp, they they violate my need for justice. 
then I am speaking from a place I think that is more like it, it, it can sound more uh, self-interested, but I think speaking from that place of my own experience, I think is more powerful to the person that I'm talking to. And nonviolent communication, uh, Marshall Rosenberg says that NVC is very self-full rather than selfish or selfless, meaning grounded in self. So then the conversation becomes around, well, whose needs are most important? And to me, every time the needs of the, the most important needs are the needs that are most affected. So it doesn't matter so much that my need for justice is being violated and someone else's need for justice being served by kidnapping the children and putting them in concentration camps. What matters is the needs of the children and the families being kidnapped and put in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then that is, I think, by connecting to my own needs and speaking from that place, it kind of indirectly centers the needs of those most affected. Yeah, I agree. I, I, like, you know, people always say, you know, facts don't care about your feelings or whatever. But if you, if you can actually get people to get in touch with their own feelings, and if you, if you can get people to actually radically be able to empathize, like to actually be able to put yourself in that other person's shoes and to be like, wow, you know, none of my needs would be getting met in this situation. And I would feel absolutely awful. And like, yes, this does violate, you know, people's needs and the need for justice. That's not something that people can actually argue with as you said, right? Like you can, people can argue the facts. Callie said this, I think on uh, Vegan Warrior Princess's attack, like you can always come up with like different facts, different statistics, different whatever to be like, no, you're wrong. And this is why and here's my reasoning. But if you actually get people to connect at kind of that base level, and really connected to their own intimate experience and their own emotions, I think, yeah, how do how do you really argue with that? Totally. And I'll say so. uh, We've I'll say also a uh, shout out to Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack. I, I uh, had a Twitter conversation with them that I wasn't, uh, I feel I didn't uh, honor their needs enough. And so shout out to them. I love y'all. Okay. Um, <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Mexi Post-Production just jumping in to say that Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack are now the bitchy shit show, which you should definitely go follow. At the time of recording, they were VWPA, but now they are bitchy shit show, so give them a follow. Also, like we've been talking a lot around uh, like outreach examples, but to to pull from an organizing example, uh, I was... in a conversation around strategy with a group of people, this was, we were trying to plan out a disruption of a Richard Spencer talk at the university for of university of Alabama and Auburn uh, mm-hmm. a while back. And uh, I noticed that there was a lot of different strategies being at play being talked about. Like there was, uh, do we want that? Some people were talking as though the primary strategy was to stop people from listening to Richard Spencer, to, to make that not happen. Some people were talking about the strategy of outreach and reaching out to them and appealing to people to, to try to recruit because we had less of a presence there. Some people were talking about the strategy of uh, showing up and, and punching every Nazi that they could see. <laughs> and so like, you know, any one of those is a strategy that we can talk about and, and debate the merits of. But when we are not even agreed on like what the strategy is, I think then like that's a good moment to pause and say, okay, what is it we want to accomplish? What are the the needs that we want to center? And I mm-hmm. think for most people who want to punch Nazis, the need that they 
or they, they, the strategy that they want to center is revenge. Revenge is a, a strategy to meet the need maybe of justice, maybe of accountability, right? Of those kinds of things. Yeah. Or people do it because we want to scare them into oblivion. So they feel afraid to show their face. And like, and the, there are ways I think that that can be utilized, you know, like, like have the, the deterrence conversation. Um, I don't think it's super effective compared to other things. Um, but then like the, if we want to stop the harm in my mind, like there are simpler and more effective ways to just prevent Richard Spencer from being heard. Um, and, cool. and I think that that is actually even more frustrating like if if I'm Richard Spencer and my job is to go out and speak so people can hear me, but every time I go out and speak, like no one can even hear me because there's some disruption that is like it creates too much noise or it creates a distraction or whatever the case is. I think oh. that's even more frustrating than if I'm Richard Spencer and I see a fight break out every time I go out. To me, like Richard Spencer seeing that would probably be pleased, but it it counts on the idea that we would win every uh, fight that we break into, which like, you know, we're, we're not going to win every one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great example. So you wrote that social emotional learning is most often used at an individual level. So I guess kind of what we've been talking about, kind of these interpersonal encounters and kind of centering different people's needs. Why do you think that is? And what are some of the ways in which you think that we can expand and use social emotional learning for social liberation or raising class consciousness? Totally. Yeah. I think that, um, that, a lot of that speaks to the power of white supremacist anti-socialism uh, dominating everything, including social emotional learning, such that when people try to speak to it, they still come at it from that in very individualist frame because it's it's colonized all of our minds. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I say colonized, including white people's minds as well. That also is happening because what social emotional, what kinds of social emotional learning get rewarded versus asked to uh, tame it down are the ones that uh, that question is also based on what serves the interest, right? If I speak to a social emotional learning that's very safe for white supremacist anti-socialism, um, then, uh, you know, I can uh, develop a career with not a whole lot of critique uh, that would like be materially meaningful for me. But if I speak to a social emotional learning that threatens white supremacy, like now it's harder for me to get a job or at least one that pays because uh, the people with money don't want to hear collective liberation talk and the people <laughs> who want their collective liberation talk don't always tend to have the money to pay for that. Um, so that that also is at play with uh, just the material support and, and a lack of support uh, of what kinds of social emotional learning are available. Um, but then in terms of how it can be used to to promote uh, social liberation and class consciousness, um, I think uh, in that way of connecting to to the needs, then it it opens up much more strategies for us and, and allows us to see like which specific strategies really would meet our needs versus the ones that like we uh, we like because of whatever reason, but would not actually like meet those deeper down needs or more of those needs. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and in that way, like when workers are talking with each other, uh, they can talk about that, that shared unmet need for material circumstances, 
um, and the, the shared violated need for, for justice. And that, and that's something then that I'm, I'm speaking as a person of wealth. Uh, I, I share a violated need for justice with workers and, uh, that, like, I don't, I can't share their, their class unity. I can't share their material circumstances, but I can share a violated need. And that I think, uh, is, is a, a strong place of, of solidarity, um, to, to ground myself in. How do you use it personally in your own activism? I'll say we've also been talking a lot about the practice of expressing Nonviolent communication. There's also the practice of receiving, uh, in a nonviolent communication way. Um, which to get to that, um, like Marshall Rosenberg says, the only two things that people have ever said to each other and will ever say to each other are please and thank you. Um, and sometimes people say please by saying fuck you, asshole. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people say please by saying, don't you think it would be better for you to consider other people's uh, feelings every once in a while? And, you know, myself coming from an Italian background, like I would much rather be asked <laughs> please from the fuck you asshole language. Um, <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, I find a lot of people prefer that. But um, but so in that way, like everything that anyone ever says to me, they can they can throw uh, judgments at me. But if I if the only thing I ever hear is their observation, feeling, need, and request. And if I can connect to their feelings and requests, so once the next time someone says, fuck you, asshole, to me, what I hear in my own heart is, uh, hey, when you did that, it, uh, I felt angry because it violated my need for this. Would you please do that instead? Then I can respond to that accordingly. Um, and, and so in a, in a communal leftist space, then like, thank God we can maybe finally get some leftist unity. And in a, uh, in a space that is, is cross political where I'm having that conversation with, you know, uh, uh, right wingers, then, um, I, it doesn't have to escalate into something where like, maybe this is a conversation around the, the marketing thing that you wanted to talk about. But if every time a right winger talks to me and, and gets into, they get into a fight or every time a right winger talks to a leftist, they get into a fight. I don't think that that is going to help the the leftist movement spread to talk again from an outreach perspective there might be uh cases where like a fight is is warranted in some way but uh to to rely on that uh when we could just as well use outreach i think is is more effective absolutely yeah that that's part of what we were talking about like me and Catherine, about reaching people on an emotional level because people don't often change their mind by being you know brutally cajoled into it, right? Or demeaned into it or whatever, right? People don't usually change their mind because they're made to feel stupid, right? They change their mind a lot of the time because they can have some kind of like empathetic connection and, and understand that, you know, if I was in this this position, then I, I would want to be treated this way and, you know, to connect to that. So yeah, I think that's really important. And I think in, in a lot of leftist spaces, we also, we have a lot of trouble actually practicing things like restorative justice, etc. We have a lot of trouble, obviously, on the left with, you know, conflict and sectarian conflict and, and people just really, really demeaning one another, I suppose, and really taking on this like, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to beat you down until you submit. And I, I think you're right that I don't think that's necessarily, I don't think we're getting nearly as far as we could 
than if we could actually learn to recognize not only our, our needs, but I really liked how you talked about like recognizing other people's needs that even if they are swearing at you or whatever, right? It's it's because they're not getting their one some of their needs are not getting met, and to kind of connect to to what they're feeling, and then to be able to. Um, speak to them in a way that will be effective and create a lasting impression. I like to say, and I'll say this both ways depending on the context, but I like to say um, the we will not uh, reach the revolution fleeing from shame, but neither will the revolution be shamed into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a tension that we need to walk. Um, but uh, but I think that the connecting to our needs and the needs of others is um, one of the more navigable ways to walk that tension. Um, mm-hmm. And so like in, in my mind, uh, this isn't necessarily like orthodox NBC language, but in my mind, what is a person? A person is a given set of feelings and needs. And I use that in, in a broad sense, including non-human persons as well. Um, but so if I want to connect with a person, if I want to invest in a person, if I want to care about a person, what I'm saying is that I am connecting to invested in and caring about their needs. Um, and if I, if I claim to care about someone, but I'm not invested in their needs, then I would, I would question what is it I'm actually caring about and investing in, if not the most critical thing to their, their person, personhood. Yeah, I mean, as as leftists who are supposed to care about other people, <laughs> um, we have a lot of we have a lot of like revenge fantasies on the left, and we have a lot of, um, and I mean, like I'm not even uh, immune to it either, right? Like you get on these platforms like Twitter, etc., and you want to just outsmart the other person, but you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna convince anybody, or you're not gonna start the revolution by like proving to everyone that you're the smartest person in the room and that you can, you know, out uh out argue them with the facts and the logic and, and whatever. So yeah, yeah, I really do like that. So in your article, you you talk about using social emotional learning to deal with abusers, um, which was really relevant to restorative justice, which I just brought up. Um, but do you think that we can extrapolate that to deal with, quote unquote, abusive society? I'm thinking of, I don't know if people have heard this, but Gabor Mate, I, I haven't actually looked at into um, too much of what Gabor Mate has done, but I heard an interview um, that he did on uh, Russell Brand's podcast, and he was arguing that we we live in a society that deeply traumatizes us, and that a lot of our you know most brutal and hawkish leaders are actually deeply traumatized people with just very unhealthy coping mechanisms. Um, and I think that it also speaks to kind of what you're talking about that they're using these strategies to meet the need, their needs, but they're not actually seeing what their needs are. And they're not seeing that the strategies are, well, maybe they are seeing that the strategies are harming themselves and others, but they, they don't really know what else to, to do. So Gabor Mate kind of sees our, our capitalist, our, our anti-social, uh, anti-socialist society as a manifestation of kind of trauma, begetting trauma. And I'm wondering if you think that social emotional learning can speak to that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, I'll say also, I think, um, it's, uh, it's Innuendo Studios, the YouTube channel who has a, a playlist called the alt-right playbook. And he has a talk on there that talks about how the alt-right operates in a similar way to an abuser. It's a, it's an abusive relationship. Um, but it's, it's just 
uh, trickier to to talk about or notice in that way because it's not one person, but a, a like a community that is collectively abusing any new recruit into that. It's like a like a like a cult, but online that you then need to without like a, a hardcore or obvious leader. But yeah, in that way, then, uh, and I'll say like, uh, there, there are definitely some critiques of, uh, NVC in terms of like, like, what am I supposed to do if I'm in an emotionally abusive relationship? Like just use this formula and then everything's going to be good. And, you know, I definitely would never, uh, would never say anything like that. I think, I think the value in NVC is also that like, I don't need to use the formula, right? If, if for whatever reason I'm in an abusive relationship that, um, that I, I can't escape from, I can connect to a person's needs and feelings without ever like saying those words to them. And, and it's not that like connecting in that sense doesn't mean that I care for them and I give myself up in order to, to help support their needs. Um, that I think is an irresponsible or it's, it's dangerous to, uh, reduce it to that. But mm-hmm. in terms of then if I'm aware of what their needs and feelings are, I can more safely navigate that, that relationship. Um, and, you know, I mean, by my God, it's still a bad situation and, and horrible, but any tool that I think a person in that situation can use, I think is, is a valuable one. And then being in touch with, if I'm in that relationship, being in touch with my own feelings and needs, like I can better figure out what it is I need to do to meet those needs. And uh, there, by, by being in touch with the needs, uh, then I open myself up to more strategies is generally what happens. So speaking to the, the a common leftist critique in terms of the, the domestic abuse pattern there. Um, yeah. but in terms of that, that institutional side, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Trauma definitely begets trauma. Um, and the trauma, the, the people enacting trauma, like we, there's a lot of talk around who is a symptom and who is a cause. Like I hear leftists like dismiss Trump as a symptom a lot. And mm. like I, I definitely agree with the, the thing that I, I think they're saying. And I would also say that Trump is absolutely also a cause. Um, mm. he is causing many other things to happen. In mm-hmm. that sense. And so, um, so trauma begets trauma, hurt people, hurt people, um, and, and healed people, heal people. And mm-hmm. to the extent that we can heal someone in an honest relationship, which like, my God, that's not easy, but like nothing about NVC is easy, but most of that is because, uh, white supremacist anti-socialism has, has trained us to be to think and, and navigate the world in the language of domination rather than the language, uh, needs-based language. Mm-hmm. Um, more practice we have with it, the, the easier it gets. But yeah, uh, uprooting internalized white supremacist anti-socialism, that's, uh, that's a life project. So to, to take it to that institutional place, then, uh, once we look at how those institutions are disconnecting from needs. We can also look at the four D's of disruption, um, which I can also pull up those. Um, or I think I, in my article, I call them the four D's of intervention. That was before I thought of a D word for, for intervention. Um, <laughs> but it, that's delegate, distract, delay, and direct, um, mm-hmm. as in direct intervention, direct action. Um, but delegate meaning like maybe I'm not the, the person that is most equipped for this for whatever reason, maybe someone else is distract meaning if I can 
distract the the abuser from the abuse, then I stop the abuse. And it, it doesn't necessarily uh, create, introduce that consciousness or or that change of that transformational change, but it um, but it does stop the harm at least in that moment. Delay, uh, which I think the, the my personal favorite example of a delayed disruption or delayed intervention would be reparations. Like we can't stop the harm of U.S. sanctioned human trafficking from having happened, but we right. can compensate for that injustice in such a way to contribute to the healing that needs to happen. Um, and then direct action, just coming in and, and stopping uh, something. And then uh, actually, um, the, those these also they come out of uh, an interpersonal framework from Hall of Back speaking to the disruption of street harassment, and they also added a fifth D, which is document. Um, so in that interpersonal sense, it would be like recording um, yeah. the, the situation so that, you know, you can then follow because they're all used in conjunction with each other. You can use delegate and distract or direct and delay or whatever. Um, but then document being something you can follow up on. And so on an institutional level, like there's a lot of talk around uh, like how important is it to to fact check in those kinds of things um, and to do all these studies that that confirm that, you know, the world is racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I definitely agree that there is uh, there is a skewed amount of energy going to one than the other. But I also think we do need the documentation to, uh, if we want to promote justice, we need to understand. Uh, we we can't just dismiss the criteria and and the the specifics of the injustice. We need to look at that and understand that as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Shout out to Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack again, but they have often referred to um, capitalism as being like bad daddy. <laughs> and if you, if you think about like patriarchy itself, I mean, like that is really like a systematic form of abuse that abuses men into adopting toxic masculinity, lest they be more abused, and then they end up abusing women as part of that same system, right? So I think extrapolating this idea of, you know, social emotional learning and learning how to actually be deeply social with other people in ways that are really healthy and that uplift the other. I feel like, yeah, I mean, extrapolating that to like a society, like if we had a society based on that kind of, um, you know, being in tune with needs and with others needs and making sure that all needs were met and dealing with each other in ways that are deeply respectful and radically honest, um, as opposed to this like absolutely abusive society that we live in, then obviously that would be, you know, that's where we're, that's, that's the goal, right? Like that's where we're, what we're trying to head towards. So many wealth hoarders, which, uh, you know, I re- that the, it's a terminology to describe people with wealth who are like actively uh, participating in the hoarding and the accumulation. Because mm-hmm. we, you know, we stigmatize people who have uh, maybe, you know, a couple hundred magazines, but we, we like laud and, and praise people who hoard billions of dollars as though that's not the same problem, but like far worse and to far greater harm. But, um, so like, yeah, so much of the motivating force of wealth hoarders is to, for, to accomplish this unconscious strategy of winning their father's approval to meet the need of like acceptance, right. Or, uh, or connection or like, uh, self-esteem or whatever. Um, when like if if we could really connect to those things then we would see like that strategy is never going to work 
And then, then, okay, if I'm trying to meet the need of acceptance and self-esteem, then what is it I have to do? Well, uh, obviously, accumulating trillions of dollars is not going to support <laughs> that. So now what is it? Now I've got to lean into community. And that's scary to lean into community and to lean into each other. But that is also the work of uh, emotional maturation is giving up ego and, and connecting to others. That That is what it means to, I think, most of the time when we use the word to be mature. Uh, and the more that we do that, the more that we are, are developing ourselves in that way. Oh my gosh, I could not agree more. That was very well said. And for anyone listening, I always have to qualify all of this by being like, we also need to change the material conditions as if people don't know that this is like an anti-capitalist show where we talk about that all the time. But I think that people also really, really downplay the extent to which this is all related and the extent to which we really do need to, to work on these things if we're going to get anywhere, A, if we're going to reach other people, and if we're going to actually be the kind of people that can live in community in a deeply like mature um, and like socially responsible and healthy way. Totally. And and to speak to that, because that's another thing that comes up all the time. I think that's a common misconception of NVC by those who critique it and by those who defend it is that uh, NVC, like, oh, what, what are you saying? That if we're nice to Nazis, then they'll like change okay. their ways. Um, I, I don't think that at all. Um, <laughs> and, but the, so then in it's what the hands do, the heart follows, right? So if we change the material conditions, um, then th that means people are then pressured to lean into each other because they, we can no longer, uh, survive by extracting. I mean, if we, you know, sufficiently change the material conditions, then we can no longer survive by extracting wealth from, from other people's work. And then how do I survive instead? I survive instead by getting rid of my shitty ego and leaning into other people. And then I'm forced to do that. Um, not in a, in a violent way, but, uh, forced to, into it in a protective way. I have to protect myself and others by leaning into community. And, um, uh, there was another point around that I wanted to make. But, oh, yeah. So, like, I think that that's a common misconception around uh, nonviolent direct action, too, is people think, oh, just by being gentle with Nazis, you'll change. But nonviolent direct action is about centering the stopping of the harm. And by changing the material circumstances, that's the most effective nonviolent direct action. Um, and it, it doesn't rely on the goodwill of, of people to change. That's not the point. And that's not the point of nonviolent communication. You know, I can people think that. NVC is like nice, like they, they equate it, I think, often with toxic positivity, which like they, as a social emotional learning person, um, I, I absolutely condemn toxic positivity where like, oh, we never bring up any of the bad feelings. Um, and uh, if we don't think it, it'll go away kind of thing, which like that is idealism, right? In the leftist sense versus the materialism. Um, so uh, so that that is not the point at all. Uh, there's a great piece by a a friend and facilitator his name is Yotam Marom he uh was the executive director of Wildfire Project which trains uh leftist facilitators and um and he's got this piece it's called uh moving toward conflict for the sake of good strategy and he talks about how like 
we we absolutely need to be in conflict with each other in genuine conflict with each other in order to be honest with ourselves and it, it in order to have good strategy we absolutely need to be honest with ourselves and so that's a fantastic he doesn't have an nvc frame but it, it speaks to all the the things you know i can put nvc translation over it or whatever but it's the it's the same stuff um and and so yeah to then the i think that that what i i often see people dismissing nvc as like a you just want to be nice kind of thing and from my perspective it seems like they they are honestly trying to justify their uh desire to uh to follow the strategy of revenge mm-hmm. um and and like that is to meet the need when when a need is uh unmet you know we can simply figure out what to do to meet the need but when a need is violated then we can't just meet the need anymore we need to overflow that need in order to heal from it and so when uh we experience something as as needs violating as white supremacist anti-socialism then in order to uh to overflow those needs and and abundantly fill them past the brim so they're they're pouring out then people think like i'm going to compensate for that by beating the shit out of every nazi i see you can you can try that strategy and let me know how it goes but i don't think it's going to create the material can change the change of material conditions that we need to stop the harm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's not going to understand why those people are committing harm either and what need that is fulfilling for them. And, you know, so it's harder for us to transform that, right? And then we just get into carcerality where it's like, oh, well, some people are just like that. And we have to just, you know, either kill them or beat them up or lock them up forever, which is, you know, such a, a patriarchal capitalist way of dealing with things, right? I think a lot of people are understandably, you know, against the death penalty or or even like abolitionists, prison abolitionists, but then they they for some reason can't really extrapolate and understand that, you know, that's that same system is where a lot of these kind of like revenge fantasies are coming from. And that like uh, you know, we're we're not gonna be able to really build a world in which we are you know, I guess, maturely social and like deeply empathetic and loving towards one another, if we're, we're not addressing that kind of dissonance that's, that's within us. And like the, the hate, you know, the hateful places from which those things are flowing. And obviously, like, if you don't, if you be nice to Nazis, they're not going to change their way. But like, you'd be surprised how many, you know, whatever, like Nazi people that I've seen who have been, you know, former, alt writers or whatever and then honestly i mean they're just young angry men and then they get a girlfriend and they're like okay maybe i don't hate all the jews you know (laughs) there's often like one uh like the one single or maybe a couple unmet needs that have been unmet for so long that that drives so much of our like unconscious sabotage impulses and stuff Mm -hmm. um but then to uh, welcome to conversations with Pierce, tangent number whatever. But um, to speak to uh, the the be nice to Nazis thing, like so the there like do I Pierce Ellen think that Nazis need therapy? Fuck yeah, I do. They of oh, yeah. course they fucking need therapy. But like the yeah. there there is to to then critique like maybe the side that I think more people would like readily equate me with 
Um, like, I, I don't think that the answer to white supremacist anti-socialism is free therapy for Nazis, right? Like, mm -hmm. we, you can only go through that process once the material conditions of power have changed. Then we can have those, those conversations. But the, the material, the changing the material conditions of power, uh, is, is centered. Uh, and then we can talk about whether, uh, being nice to Nazis in like a, in like a relational setting that can be more healing and therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but until then, like, I, I think there are people totally. who, uh, on the, on the social emotional learning side who want to jump the gun on that. They think, oh, we need to, let's, let's give them the empathy and then they'll be better. It's like, we, the, right. you, you can do that if you want, but like, that's, that's not going to change. That's not going to stop the harm. Absolutely. Yeah. But I also think, I mean, I think that both of these things have to be true at the same time, right? Like it kind of has to happen in kind of like dialectical unity, if you will, because if you think about empathy, like if you think about like growing up, conservatism is basically just the idea that, you know, some people are more deserving than others. Like there are certain people that are better than others for whatever reason, and like they deserve more, right? But if people had, you know, radical empathy and like were in right relationships, with themselves a lot of times like people grow up in this like patriarchal system you know it's it's very oppressive it's a very oppressive place to be and then yeah so many of your needs are not being met and then you're angry and then and then it's it's you know it's coming out in these ways that like you want you want that to be true you want it to be true that like certain people deserve more than others but like if we could reach people like if people had honestly radical empathy conservatism would not exist right Absolutely. I think that. And so to, to speak to like empathy, I, I, uh, I like the word empathy, especially because it's, it's a transitive or like to empathize is a transitive verb. So it opens the opportunity. What is it we're empathizing with? And I think that is, um, something that a, a lot of, uh, liberals, especially, but, and like the rest of the world, but, uh, but leftists, who like aren't familiar with NBC maybe or like whatever that that we get tripped up on is that uh like okay your strategy then is to go and talk to Nazis and be nice but like you want to offer them empathy but then because we're so conditioned then to focus on thoughts and analyses and judgments and, and strategies then they they try to empathize with uh thoughts and judgments and strategies and analyses they want like that's why there's so many fluff pieces after trump was elected around like let's try to understand this nazi today like let's talk to him like why did you why, why is it that you are a nazi what like and, and why richard spencer got so much press coverage but mm -hmm. if, if that that's i think a solid boundaries i can empathize with uh the needs and feelings of someone whose whose thoughts and judgments and strategies i i find abhorrent uh mm -hmm. but setting the boundary of not empathizing with those thoughts and strategies and judgments absolutely and, and that's where liberals will try to empathize with a Nazi. And then they walk out of that conversation of fucking Nazi. And, and right, like that, right. um, <laughs> yeah. they don't have that, that boundary. Uh, whereas if everything is neat, we don't even need to ask the question, what do people deserve if we live in a needs-based economy? Because, oh, you have a need? Okay, let's see what we can do to meet the need. And don't even worry about, like, do you deserve this or not? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. To me, it's just so self-evident that when you say empathy, like you're empathizing with like that part of that person that like feels small and, you know, whatever, hurt or hopeless or whatever, not the way that they're choosing to cope with that, obviously. But if you understand where it's coming from, then you can better connect with them and be like, I want your needs to be met. But the way that you're doing this is not only not meeting your needs, but it's actually like depriving other people of their needs being met. And here's a way that all of our needs can be met. Okay, so in your article, you also talked about this idea of the importance of, I guess, marketing movements. So what do you think that we can learn from, I guess, marketing for movement building? And I have the caveat that, you know, I absolutely hate the idea of this. I actually, my my ex-partner was a marketer and would always tell me that, like, I just, I wasn't marketing socialism well, or that, like, we, we had a real, like, problem with our marketing. But, like, I'll give it to you. You know, I've been to a lot of actions actually where I'm looking around and I'm like, you know, our optics right now are really crap. <laughs> and like, we we really need to get better at this in order if we're going to have mainstream relevance at all. Right. So I guess, what do you have to say about that? Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I talk about insights that, uh, that, the marketing have the the like science of marketing has has found um but it's i don't uh condone marketing itself i, <laughs> yeah. I take so i'm i you know i could maybe like make that clearer in the article if i need to but the uh the insights of value from marketing uh are they hold water because they're insights into relationality and they they you know the whole field of marketing chooses to weaponize that for the purpose of extraction profit off of other people's consumption but that that doesn't mean that the insights themselves are not valuable so the, i think the part that i focus on in that context is that when we are communicating we are always communicating i should use the word communicating instead of marketing would be help to get the better the point but mm-hmm. um we're always communicating and in relationship based on the quote product or content, the quote experience and the identity. Those are the, the, but the, the real insight that marketing found is that we're always communicating on all three levels at all the same time. So to use the example marketing, uh, like textbooks we use often is, uh, the, like selling a cup of coffee. Like if I talk to you about the coffee, about the product of the coffee, about the beans and stuff, I can try to market you on the level of the product, but I'm always communicating to you on the level of identity too. So if like, if all you care about is getting enough caffeine to like make it through the workday and I'm talking to you about the artisanal craft of like the roasting of the beans or whatever, <laughs> you're going to like get this fucking coffee nerd out of my face. Like I don't care about this shit. Mm-hmm. But if, if, if I can frame it instead, so like, here's the, like the artisanal quality, the craft maximizes the caffeine level or whatever. Now I'm speaking to your identity. Your identity is a coffee drinker drinks coffee to get by the daily sludge of, uh, white supremacist anti-socialist. But so then in that context, in terms of like advocacy work, which like, you know, a lot of my, my, uh, the stuff I talk about is around advocacy and, and outreach stuff. Um, but to, to bring it to that then, if every single socialist vegan, if every single time a person has a conversation with a socialist vegan, they walk away and they think, wow, socialist vegans are really good listeners or like, wow, like I feel really good and just like, like it feels really good to, to talk with socialist vegans all the time. 
then like at some point, you know, we're going to give it a year. We'll be, we'll be a socialist vegan society in, in no time. And there are, you know, it's not that simple and it's not going to work with every single person, but there are enough people on the fence. Like the, a lot of my work, I kind of think in my own head about it being like talking to liberals about how leftist they really are. And there, there are enough leftists who don't know that they're leftists who just think that they're liberals that like we can, we can focus on them, right? Like there's so much emphasis on, like, you know, talking to our, our Nazi uncle or whatever. And like, I want to be in relationship with my family members. So I practice that, but that's not the focus of my work. The focus of my work is drawing in people who can then contribute to organizing and mm-hmm. And those are the the leftists who think that they're liberals who don't realize they're leftists yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of my mom, (laughs) who is famously just like apolitical, like just doesn't bother with politics, but she's like one of the most empathetic people and she has so much compassion and she really recognizes like injustice in the world. Anyway, on Facebook, she's sharing the most fire radical memes. And I don't even know if she realizes (laughs) like like what she's sharing, but it's just because she, she can connect to them on an emotional level. Right. And so I think that's so true. Right. Like if we're talking about, I guess, you know, socialist ideas and whatever, we have to, you know, everyone decries identity politics, but like a lot of what draws people to different, you know, products, as you say, like in the kind of marketing terms uh, or content is, you know, their identity, like the identity that they are or the identity that they like want to to craft or to present to the world and whatever. Um, and so I feel like if we're not really speaking to that, and I feel, I feel like that's why Bernie Sanders has done so well, because he's really talked to people's experiences and to their identity and to what's actually driving them um, and hurting them in their lives and whatnot. I think for a lot of us and myself included, like I, I think I started my my YouTube channel, for example, really talking or speaking more to people's emotions and their experiences. And I think I've kind of migrated now to where I, I kind of present these, you know, academic, like here's all the all the data, here's all the facts and whatever. And, you know, I try to make it, you know, emotionally connected too but um but yeah i do think that that is something that we have to to think more about is how to yeah how to, how to make people leave interactions with us feeling i guess yeah seen heard and also that like they can really connect in a deep personal way with what we've said right yeah i mean in like speaking as a socialist vegan who went through the the thing I'm about to say is that the reason that a lot of people don't eat vegan or uh, uh, read socialist politics or, or practice socialist politics is because they are afraid that because in order if they did that, then they would be vegan and then they would be a socialist and they have ideas about what it means to be. That's yeah. I, you know, I didn't entertain the idea of, of veganism or of socialism because I was scared of what that might mean if I became a vegan or a socialist. Um, I didn't want to, to entertain that conversation in, in sincerity for fear of how it might change me and, and my relationships and all that. And like yeah. that, that was also the reason. And from an like intra left standpoint is that, uh, I like, I was afraid to like study Stalin for a while because I thought like, what if I come out of that <laughs> like a Stalinist tanky? I was afraid of that. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry for isolating like a whole bunch of your listeners or whatever, but, um, <laughs> but like that's that knowing that I think is important for for us both as 
people dedicated to developing ourselves and as people trying to uh to encourage other people to develop themselves is like that that is the real fear like there i know one uh vegan outreach person who uh he he would always uh like kind of dismiss their the first reason the first few reasons that a, a non-vegan would ever give him he's like so yeah so like here's the background so like can you tell me like why you're not vegan and they would say well well like yeah but uh, like i wouldn't get enough protein or whatever and his question was always in response to like the first few reasons was always okay let's say that you were you could go vegan and you'd get enough protein like then would you still do it uh yeah. then would you do it and and they would usually say no i wouldn't do it and they you have to go through a couple more times to get to a, like a deeper reason or whatever and yeah. like there's so many people that reason is just like well cuz you're vegan i'm not and it, like in terms of thinking of identity like that's the case closed situation which is i really love what um writer of the book eating animals uh jonathan saffron four said in one of his talks he says he'll he'll have entire conversations with people where like they'll see that uh you know his plate doesn't have any meat on it and they say something they're like oh you got no meat today or whatever and he says he, he has an entire conversation with them never says that he's vegan he says yeah, I'm trying mm-hmm. to reduce my my uh, animal consumption or whatever. Because the moment he says he's vegan, that's a that's a conversation closer in that in that outreach context, right? Because mm-hmm. um, then they're like, oh, you're vegan, okay? I'm not like we don't have to figure this out anymore. But mm-hmm. when we hear, oh, you're cutting down your animal consumption, like why? Like is that something I should be doing? Right. Is that like? <laughs> but then, so it's not that the words identity based words are bad it's that like outreach wise we can think more effectively whereas like sometimes god it just feels so good to be seen by going to a conference and saying like i'm a vegan or whatever um mm-hmm. and like there, and there's so much conversation around that with the word feminist too like you know we can talk about like the outreach component and how like the word feminist might scare off people but like i'm not going to say that feminist is a bad word i i want to shout i'm a feminist and be seen or like you know aspiring feminist ally or whatever and i want a connection that shares that um but in terms of the the outreach then there then that is where we have to be thinking in terms of identity as well Mm-hmm. That's so true. And I, that's so smart. Uh, the eating animals, uh, author thing. <laughs> that's like so brilliant. Yeah. So I think that's super important. So yeah, that's kind of all the questions that I have. Um, I'm wondering if you can maybe, well, if you have anything to add, please do so now. But I'm also wondering, uh, you know, how can people without any training in this and social emotional learning start to, to learn to implement its principles in their activism? Totally. Yeah. Um, so one thing I'll add before that is, uh, for a more to give people who are maybe like still not sure about nonviolent communications purposes as a, as a leftist, I'll say, uh, Marshall Rosenberg himself, he, uh, sought out to develop nonviolent communication growing up in Detroit in 60s, 70s during the race riots. And he wanted to like figure out a way that he could contribute to there being less violence on the planet. He has brought this to like extremely embittered, uh, marriages and he has brought this to war-torn countries, including Israel-Palestine. You know, he's sat down with people who have murdered each other's family members. He has said, that there he has never encountered a conflict that cannot be resolved 20 minutes after the point at which everyone can name what the other person's needs are mm-hmm. um sometimes that takes decades to get to that point but once that point has been reached 
then he has never encountered a conflict that can't be resolved in 20 minutes. And so Marshall Rosenberg himself, you know, he says, if nonviolent communication were truly adopted, white supremacist anti-socialism would crumble on him in no time. Um, he said, never pay for anything and never, never request payment for anything. All you do is offer gifts. Uh, and then you make requests for gifts so that you can continue giving the thing that you're giving. And that's nonviolent communication. You cannot use purposeful nonviolent communication to solicit investments in weapons manufacturing. It won't work. It only works. <laughs> Uh, with things that affirm other, other, the needs of others and, and that meet those needs. It won't work with anything that doesn't meet needs. Uh, especially anything that violates those needs. And then one lesser known interview that I absolutely love, cause this is another thing that, uh, the crit criticism that NVC will get sometimes is that it can be victim blaming in like talking about people creating their own reality or whatever, their own situation. Um, in that vein of radical responsibility, but in an interview with a, a woman who my, I, I don't know her well at all, but my first read of her is like a little on the, the white woo spiritual side. But, um, but she says, what I really love about your practice is that it encourages radical responsibility and how we are all responsible for creating our own realities. And his response to that, and this is something I think not enough nonviolent communication practitioners are aware of at all and, and uh, will often work against. But Marshall Rosenberg, the founder, his response to that is, uh, yes, well, I appreciate that. And I also think it's important to know that that is a common technique used to blame victims in, in abusive relationships and such. And so I think it's also important to name that not only do we create our own realities, but our own realities are also created by others, including gangs. And some gang gangs call themselves gangs, and some gangs call themselves multinational conglomerates. But they create <laughs> Marshall Rosenberg is a total anarchist. You heard it from me here on this podcast. Beautiful. I share that with any problematic uh, nonviolent communication practitioners or or non less problematic ones who just want to you know develop their NVC work. Um, but so yeah, so in terms of like following up on this. Um, the, I mean, the book on the subject is Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. There's an accompanying workbook. Uh, it's by someone else, but, uh, but has the NVC stamp of approval. And so you can get the, the one book and, you know, get the workbook to practice it. There's also like, depending on what your field is or interest, there's like NVC for educators or NVC for healthcare practitioners and things like that. There's a book like me, I'm really into spiritual stuff. So there's a book by Marshall Rosenberg called Practical Spirituality that talks about NVC in, in that context. But my absolute favorite book on the subject is a book called Decolonizing Nonviolent Communication. It's written by someone named Minachi uh, from, and is published by the Women's Center for Creative Work. Uh, I cannot recommend that book enough. Of course, like I, like, I read it having read the nonviolent communication book first. So I don't know what it would be like to read the decolonizing without having read the first one. Um, but it, it I'm, I'm sure it's still valuable, but it has a, a wonderful approach of incorporating the power analysis and, and dropping into your body. I think that's something that's happening a lot with NVC on a grander scale. Is it being incorporated into somatic therapy and having more of a trauma analysis that like, kind of lends itself more to the power analysis components too. And so there's my, like my own therapist is a, is an NVC somatics trauma practitioner. Um, oh. and uh, she comes out of, she was educated by Sarah Payton. Uh, Sarah Payton is a really awesome person who's doing that combining work, uh, especially with a field called interpersonal neurobiology. 
and and so she trains a lot of people and has a lot of content i'll say um that they're like once Marshall Rosenberg passed, they uploaded a lot of his workshops on YouTube. And it's really helpful. Uh, at least it was for me to see NVC like in action in that way. And, and, and into speaking of like the, the word policing, like you can see too, what I really appreciated is like Marshall Rosenberg has like two roles in every seminar that he gives. He's got the role of educating a person on the practices, but then he's also got the role of like, actually engaging in the the nonviolent communication empathic style. And so sometimes you can see when he'll guess like, oh, they said something that I think they could tweak better or whatever. And so he'll give that, but then like they're still stuck and he says, oh, okay. What they actually needed was the empathy. I'll switch to that. And so like, you can see that happen and it's really beautiful to, to see that, that dance. And then of course there's my own content. There's the article you've been uh, referencing called social emotional learning for social justice, which is also like the, the, uh, one of the primary talks I give to, especially to schools, I think it, that one also, I think really speaks to teachers and facilitators who are trying to bring in the content of social justice in a way that they feel safe. Um, cause like, you know, I walk in and I start talking about white supremacy and like, you know, you can, you can hear stuff from parents about that. But I think the social emotional learning for social justice framework really, really helps uh, offer a place to to do that from. And then I've got one, uh, an article coming out with, um, it's called uh, What Does Sex Have to Do with Socialism? And it's all about uh, the relationality required for sex being a component for socialism, something that is destroyed by capitalism. It's for slash with or on behalf of a friend of mine runs uh, an organization called My Sexual Biography, which like the whole point of that organization is to claim sexual agency and narrative uh, for ourselves. And so I've, I'm doing a, a monthly series on that with an, a, a collect, an intersectional socialist lens and framework. Awesome. Yeah, so I'll definitely include all of these things as links in the show notes so everyone can check them out. And um, do you want to shout out where people can find you? We'll, we'll also put this in the show notes. Totally, yeah. So my work is on Medium, uh, medium.com. You can always find me uh, by my name, Pierce Delahunt, or my handle, De La Pierced, D as in dog, E-L-A, Pierced, P-I-E-R-C-E-D. And, uh, you know, I'm most active social media wise on Twitter and Instagram, but I have uh, stuff on like every platform except TikTok, basically. <laughs> yeah. What even is that? I, I'm like too old for that. <laughs> no, I, I love the, the compilations of the TikTok videos, but I don't actually produce TikTok content myself. Gotcha. Um, all right. So perfect. We, we'll put all of that in the show notes and everyone can, can check it out. So uh, yeah, just thank you so much, Pierce, for coming on the show. This was such a great conversation and I hope people really enjoy it. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I hope that it contributed to your and your listeners' needs and uh, that everyone walks away uh, feeling some some madness in that respect. Cheers.